Well, good morning, everyone. Peace be with you. And peace be to everyone tuning in at home. Peace be with you guys um, from your living rooms. And my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at the Oaks. You guys are getting like Pastor Palooza from up front here today, aren't you? <laughs> it's heavy. It's been a heavy week. Uh, and we kind of have a heavy text. And not to confuse uh, this afternoon's member meeting with our text, but when we dive in, it, this text in Matthew 23, it reads like a family meeting. Don't be confused with our member meeting now. I'm differentiating. We're going into this family meeting discourse that Jesus has with his, with his family. Do you guys ever have family meetings? Have you had them growing up? You know, family meetings are focused time with people in your household to share an announcement, a warning, or perhaps news of a threat. While a family meeting can be exciting, it seems that more often than not, right, family meetings aren't usually fun. Here in our text today, I think Jesus has called a family meeting with his bloodline, the Pharisees. There's a couple players here in this family meeting. There's the Pharisees and there's the disciples. To give a little bit of background of the Pharisees, the Pharisees had been around for centuries at this point. They were birthed out of the idea that God was not happy with his people, Israel, his family of Israel, his nation of Israel, God's chosen people, because they were being disobedient to God's commands. The Pharisees came to be a group that would make sure that Israel was following God's commands to a fault. And ironically, so they wouldn't be found at fault to win God's favor. As we will see, however, is that in reality, this has been harmful to the Pharisees, very harmful to their relationship with God. That's the Pharisees. The other group here in the family meeting is the disciples. They are off to the side. They're not the focus of this discourse, but they are there. They hear Jesus' words, and to the disciple Matthew, this family meeting was important enough to be heard by the world as he decides to record it. So we've got these two groups in the meeting. Now where do we fit in? Do you relate to the Pharisee or the disciple? And I want to oversimplify in a distinction, but for clarity's sake, the disciple is aware of their sin, thus they proclaim Jesus as Lord. They know they're a sinner. This is the Pharisee. Think of the younger brother in the prodigal son story. Conversely, the Pharisee believes that they know what God wants, and so they do that to perfection. Thus, they please God. Think the older brother in the prodigal son story, right? In one way, the disciples and the Pharisees are similar. They're both sinners. The disciples, here's where they're, though, dangerously different. The disciples are aware of the fact that they're sinners. And the Pharisees do not. And because the Pharisees do not realize their sin, Jesus has some seriously sharp words for them. Because they need to hear them. Not because he hates them or wants to berate them, 
But because these are the kind words, these are the kind of words that they will be able to receive. So again, which one do we relate to? The disciple or the Pharisee? In reality, I think we probably vacillate between the two. You know, the final thing that I think needs clarification before we jump into this is Jesus is not using hateful language to the Pharisees. It may seem hateful to you and I, but that doesn't mean that it is. The language and tone used here by Jesus to the Pharisees has led many people to think that there are certain types of people that God hates. Friends, that is just not true. Jesus always knows his audience. He is a wonderful counselor who knows just precisely how to speak into people's lives. His words cut us like no one's can. Any Enneagram fans out there this morning? Any Enneagram fans? Yep. It's Yokes. Everybody's an Enneagram fan, right? <laughs> I imagine... You don't have to know, if you don't know the Enneagram, that's okay. But for those of you who track with me here, I imagine the Pharisees are Enneagram 8 or the powerful type. Now, the Enneagram 8, at their best, this is so cool, at their best is courageous, willing to put themselves in serious jeopardy to achieve their vision and have a lasting influence. At their worst, they develop delusional ideas about their power, their invincibility, and their ability to prevail. But here's what's more important about the Enneagram 8. It's the only one that would hear these words as a normal mode of communication. You know, any other type would hear these words. There's, there's eight other types. There's nine in total. Any other type would hear these words as too strong, over the top, unnecessarily mean. But the eight can receive them. This language connects with them. We have to receive we have to realize, friends, that we're all different and we communicate differently. And that's what I love about the Enneagram. It's a helpful tool to help us learn how to best communicate with each other. But Jesus doesn't need the Enneagram. He doesn't need the Enneagram to enlighten him. He knows just the words, the tone, and the presence that these Pharisees need to hear. So I'm going to give a simple outline for our text, and we'll work through it. But Jesus' seven woes, that's what he starts off with. So we're going to first read and explore Jesus' seven woes to the Pharisees. Secondly, the consequences for their sins. And then Jesus ends here in this discourse with the hope in God. There's a lot of hope here, and we're going to talk about that. It's super exciting. But first, we're going to go through um, the seven woes. So let's turn to our text in Matthew 23. Starting in verse 13, we're going to go to the end of 39. And if you guys are able this morning, will you please stand with me out of respect for God's word as we read? Matthew 23, starting in verse 13. Says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the door, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte—that's a convert. 
And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you blind guides who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by whom dwells in it. And whoever uh, swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. We started off this morning with that from Micah 6.8. I don't know if you guys caught that. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you the prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the God, of the Lord. Will you guys pray with me real quick? Father, thanks for being with us this morning. Thanks for these uh, difficult words. But even though you give us difficult words, you also never leave us. You never stop loving us. And even in our most uh, impressive endeavors, where we're blind to see that we need you, you call us out and you draw us to you. I pray that the words that we hear this morning are from you, not from me, God. We need your presence always. We need your words always. And just help me get out of the way of your word. And spirit, work on the hearts of all of us this morning. 
to give us the peace um, and the presence and the hope that we need. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys can take a seat. I know you got your aerobic activity today. It's a long standing. So I'm going to, to start out, we're going to go through the woes. And in a woe, Jesus is exclaiming his grief. I'm going to go quickly uh, for time's sake. You know, we could spend a week on each one of these woes probably. But we're going to simply do a high level flyover. I will have the woe in my own words on on the screen and the verses up that correspond with it. That'll help us give us a little bit of structure, and then I'll add into uh, the woe a a quick little context and how it may apply today. So, and remember, these seven woes are not the thrust of, you know, his message here, but this is the first subset, the seven woes. So woe, number one, wrong teaching. Jesus says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. So his first woe is wrong teaching. Jesus is calling them out for deflecting others away from faith in him as the Christ. He's calling them out for for teaching the will of God falsely. He's calling them out for teaching soothing evasions rather than God's simple commands in Scripture. And he calls them out for living loveless lives by binding people to human traditions rather than to God's true law. For example, in our day, can someone have a relationship with God if they don't read their Bible? Can someone have a relationship with God if they don't read their Bible? Have you ever taught this to yourself? Have you ever taught this to someone else? I have. And in doing so, I have deflected 32 million illiterate Americans and one in five people worldwide who cannot read away from Christ. Woe number two, making false converts. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. The proselyte's just a different word for convert. So the second woe simply warns the Pharisees that a man or woman can be so consumed with God's mission in the world that he or she simply creates fellow fanatics. And what are they fanatics of? Well, the false teachings of woe one. Woe three, the inability to distinguish important from unimportant. Jesus says, and I'm going to cut this part a little short, but Jesus says, Woe to you blind guides who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? Inability to distinguish important from unimportant. You know, I love this. The Pharisees, they call themselves the leaders of the blind. Jesus calls them the blind leaders. 
Jesus is protesting their false exposition of the Scripture and their consequent inability to distinguish important from unimportant scriptural emphasis. Lord, have mercy on me right now. But tricky, convoluted extending of God's law is not the teaching of the Holy Spirit, friends. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing, piling on addendum after addendum to the Scriptures. For instance, in the camp of Hillel, which would have been one of the three, there were like three camps of Pharisees. In the camp of Hillel, concerning divorce, one would interpret the ambiguous phrase in Deuteronomy 24.1. It says, some indecency in her as allowing a husband to divorce his wife for almost any reason, including burning his dinner. The Pharisees, now this is one of hundreds of examples, the Pharisees kept making these distinctions to unimportant things rather than focusing on the most important thing. And they must have heard it thousands of times, to love God and to love neighbor. All right, woe four, making what's minor to God major. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Again, that's Micah 6.8. We read that this morning. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Leviticus 27.30 and Deuteronomy 14.22 command agricultural ties of only corn, wine, and oil. Just corn, wine, and oil. But the scribes and the Pharisees who wanted to do more than commanded to show their seriousness tithed even in their common garden growth. What was one to make of these extras? Well, Jesus found them repellent. So tithing to Jesus is minor. It is important, but and he never condemns tithing, but what's major? Jesus pulls from Micah 6.8. He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require but to, one, do justice, two, love mercy, three, to walk humbly with your faith. When we tithe and we fast, we do indeed strain out the gnat of impurity, and we show that we love God's law, but then we neglect to do justice. We neglect to show mercy. A Pharisee neglects to have faith, and they swallow camels. Woe five. <clears throat> Excuse me. The obsession of outward appearance. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. This fifth woe, the obsession with appearance and pleasure. What is inside the immaculate-looking cup, Jesus knows, was acquired by plunder, by wheeling and dealing, by cheating, and by greed. It matters to Jesus how we, learn, how we earn our living and how we acquire our things. The Pharisees were living off of others. What is on their plate does not belong to them. Well, for us, notice how many of our clothes, our conveniences, our playthings are made in El Salvador or other developing nations. We have to ask ourselves, who or what are we running over 
in our obsession with our outward appearance. Woe six, consume with looking good. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but, with the, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You know, once a year, shortly before the Passover, the graves were painted white with chalk, so that if a priest accidentally touched one, they would not be considered unclean. And Jesus uses these graves for his illustration here. The graves look impressive, but inside the grave, what we find is not impressive. Dead men's bones and utter uncleanness. This quest for beauty is a selfish endeavor. Many of us want to appear righteous or beautiful to others, but our heart is full of utter uncleanness. Imagine you go to a convenience store. To make this point, I'll tell you a quick story. Imagine you go to a convenience store. Much to your dismay, someone is robbing it. The cashier is being held at knife point. Now you have two options. Flee or intervene. And thinking about intervening and saving the day, you have this quick daydream of being a hero. Maybe getting in the news article or being seen on TV. So you decide to intervene, you call the police on your cell phone, you take the knifeman down, you subdue him until the police can arrive. Now in our culture, would you ever think, well would you or our culture ever think you a sinner in this matter? Uh, probably not, but Jesus would. <laughs> your motivations were selfish. Alright, woe seven, pride. This is, pride is what puts Jesus on the cross. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Pride. It's defined as inordinate self-esteem. The Pharisees thought they had the Bible right. And in thinking they correctly understood all of the scriptures, they were proud enough to declare that if they had lived back in the day, they would have never killed the prophets. When in fact, they end up killing the Messiah, the chosen one the prophet of all prophets. You know, without a careful mind, we can read chapter 23 and say, we aren't like the Pharisees. We would have never killed Jesus if we would have been alive at their time. And all the while saying that, in our pride, we are ironically doing exactly what the Pharisees did. Jesus points out our unbecoming self-confidence of those of us who say we would have never done that. I mean, who knows that? So then Jesus tells the Pharisees to fill up then the measure of your fathers. The way they will fill up and cap off their father's long history of sins against the prophets will be to kill their Messiah and his messengers. 
All right, so here ends the seven woes. <laughs> we got through them. And now Jesus turns to a different topic, and that is the consequence for their sins. And it's our second topic, the consequences for their sins. And it's simply the destruction of Jerusalem. Verse 34, it says, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. On you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jesus is describing a moment in the future. And I think you guys are going to get to hear a little bit more about this next week. But simply, in 70 AD, which is probably just a few years after Matthew writes this, Jerusalem will be laid waste by the Roman Empire. If you weren't the one of a million killed, you would have been taken away as a slave. The whole city will be destroyed. And why does Jesus put all the responsibility here on the scribes and Pharisees for all of the righteous blood spilt? And he's saying from innocent Abel, who would have been the first person to die an innocent death in the Hebrew Scriptures, to the last person, Zechariah, who would have been the last martyr to die a death in the Hebrew Scriptures, it's because their generation crucifies the Messiah, the promised deliverer that all their scriptures point to. They will be the group that will top off the sins of the world. And Jesus and Jerusalem's destruction is their fault. Now, like I said from the get-go, this is sharp language. This is, it seems to be really hard and harsh. But none of this is untrue. It happens. Jesus does not end here, though. He is not finished speaking with them. Brings us to our, our final point, hope in God. The family meeting continues. You can imagine like you could have heard a pin drop at this point, right? <laughs> to end here with the indictment of Israel would be to circumvent the center of the New Testament gospel and the reason for the family meeting. We see why fearful judgment of God did in fact fall upon that generation, most notably the awful raising of Jerusalem in 70 AD. The eternal guilt, eternal punishment, not only for that generation's sins, the Pharisees, but the sins for all other generations, our sins, and all the other, came down on one man and one man alone. Isaiah 53.5 says this, But he, it's alluding to Jesus, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Ironically, a crucified Christ is exactly what they needed. They need Jesus to go to the cross. It is the only way that they will get to be part of the choir that sings verse 39 in the future.
In verse 39 is Psalm 118, but he says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The lament over Jerusalem. So we're going to finish up the last three verses, 37 through 39. We turn to our final verses. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the double Jerusalem, Jerusalem, shows Jesus' love, like his Martha, Martha, in Luke 10. His Saul, Saul, in Acts 9. And the, and the angels, Abraham, Abraham, in Genesis 22. We are seeing Jesus lamenting Jerusalem's history, past, present, and future. Jesus communicates his love when he likens himself to a mother hen. The hen's, wing, the hen's wings were protective against the dangers to the chicks. Jesus' teaching had been protective against dangers to Israel, to the Pharisees. And we come upon our final verse, 39. And it's hard to make sense of at first. It seems out of place, but it is crucial. Jesus is quoting Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 would have been sung every year at the Passover, and it would have been extremely familiar to these Pharisees. This song was sung as Jesus entered Jerusalem, and this song was mostly sung at the Last Supper with his disciples. What in the world does Jesus mean, and why is he alluding to this song? Is verse 39 a judgment? Is he using it as judgment or a promise? Is Jesus saying that when he comes, when he comes back, everyone will be singing Psalm 118, whether voluntarily or involuntarily? Whether they want to or not, you're going to be singing Psalm 118. Many commentators believe this to be true and interpret this verse as judgment. They hear it as, your chances are now over. At my return, you will have to acknowledge me as a blessed one who comes in the name of the Lord. The first century Jews will have to unwillingly bow to him, unwillingly greet him. And to give some of these commentators credit, uh, if you read the first half of the, the chapter, I mean, you can see how they're drawn to this conclusion. But what if Jesus is as audacious as to be giving the Pharisees hope? Letting them in on a powerful secret that many of them, maybe not now, but then, will be declaring him Lord when he returns. Listen to more of the song. Again, they would have known this. But Psalm 118, verses just 1 and 2. There's a ton in there, but just 1 and 2. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. He's not stopping. 
He's not stopping chasing them, chasing after them and loving them. Let Israel say, and this is like, it's almost like using your first name. If I'm listening to Psalm 118 and I'm them, I'm, I'm hearing, let Brandon say, his steadfast love endures forever. I'm writing myself into this. Write yourself into this. Israel, the Pharisees, they were, they identified, they were like the Cremo Israelites. I believe what Jesus is communicating to the Pharisees is hope. This is a song we, God's people, will be singing when he returns. Jesus quoting Psalm 118 implies that there are Jews who will greet with praise the risen Lord when he appears again. And I think scripture is quite clear that the Pharisees have the same hope as the disciples. Repentance and faith in Jesus is the way to salvation, friends, disciple or Pharisee. Repentance and faith in Jesus is the way to salvation. The last word of Jesus to Judaism in Matthew is the condemnation of Pharisaism. But it ends with the announcement that Christ will also be received at his return by an Israel, these people, these Pharisees, that rejoice to see him. To be able to receive Christ when he comes again is simply to repent of our sins and to put our faith in Christ. There are so many characters in God's story, but each has the same call, that same call. Whether we relate to the Pharisees, who need to look very hard and very deep within to see the sin of their pride, or we relate to the disciples, or we relate to the younger brother in the prodigal story, or the older brother in the prodigal story, or we relate to the woman caught in the act of adultery, we relate to Abraham or Moses or David, Peter or Paul, we are all called to repentance. Jesus stands ready to take the blame for the Pharisee and to take the blame for the disciple. We are invited not to be enemies with our Father, even though we deserve to be. And speaking of Paul, there's, he's one Pharisee we know well enough who went through this transformation. And it was a transformation. God changed his name, which makes me wonder as if, if we go through this transformation, we consider, should consider doing the same thing you know, it was the Apostle Paul. Paul was once known as Pharisee Saul. Pharisee Saul had an immense amount of biblical training. He would have had a lot of the Bible memorized. He followed God's law. He had such zeal to please God. He was under the, the teaching of the Pharisee Hillel. He later describes himself as the Pharisee of Pharisees. But his faith and repentance with Jesus transforms him. And let's read out of Galatians 2. It's, it's uh, verse 19 and 21. Paul says this. This is the message translation. What actually took place was this. I tried keeping rules and working my head off to please God, and it didn't work. So I quit being a lawman so that I could be God's man. Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion. And I am no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine, but it is lived in faith 
in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I am not going to go back on that. Paul's ego is no longer central as it was as a Pharisee. He is no longer driven to impress God. He knows he can't. You can't pay someone a hundred bucks for a priceless diamond. It's just offensive. He lives in faith and knows that God gave himself up for him even though he partook in nailing him to the cross. On a personal note, as I have worked through this text over the last couple of weeks, I have been acutely reminded of the importance of repentance, not only of my sins, but also of my good works that sadly are often done selfishly and in pride. But I'm thankful Jesus has illuminated the deceptive work of pride in my life. Because in more ways than one, it has kept me from being his son. And it has dethroned him from being Lord of my life. And it has done so sneakily and stealthily. I am thankful for Jesus' sharp words to me. Because I have needed to hear them. In conclusion, Matthew intends hope in Jesus' final word. Matthew intends hope, friends, in Jesus' final word. Matthew's Jesus is not taking back everything he said about judgment and his woes. But by quoting Psalm 118 at the end of this chapter, at the end of the family meeting, as Matthew's final official word to Israel, he wants to remind Israel and the church of what the festive psalm promised and celebrated that the Lord's steadfast love endures forever. As we turn now to communion, let's remember, whether we relate to the disciple or the Pharisee, we need Jesus' body, which is the wafer broken for us, and we need Christ's juice, or, I'm sorry, Christ's blood, which is represented by the juice for our sins. This is, for the Christian, a physical and an outward proclamation, by doing this, of the inward proclamation we've already made. If you're not a Christian, you're here this morning, you're checking us out uh, online or here in person, and you haven't yet identified as needing Christ's body and blood broken for you, then it doesn't make a lot of sense to take part in this. But please, if your heart is like stirred, come talk to me, come talk to one of the other pastors, talk to a friend, talk to a community group leader, but reach out if the Spirit is stirring in your heart. And talk about what it would look like to be transformed by the love, by the steadfast love of Jesus Christ. Um, I'm going to pray. The band's going to come up. When you guys feel ready, um, please take the body and the blood.
broken for you and poured out for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for being here. Holy Spirit, uh, man, I just have mercy on me. Work on the, have mercy on all of us. Work on our hearts, God. Show us that we're maybe hesitant to go to you because of the good things that we do in our lives. But break down that wall. And all that we do, we need to be brought back to you. We need to be brought back into relationship with you. The relationship that transforms us and gives us peace and joy and hope in life that's filled with so much death and decay and sorrow and brokenness. Um, God, thanks for loving us steadfastly forever and ever. Thanks for drawing us to you. Thank you for your grace. Jesus, thank you for willingly going to the cross for each of us. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.